Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, happy holidays, everybody. This is Christmas Eve day, and the market closed early in celebration. It was a short session, but we did manage a small positive gain. The Dow was up about six points for its second consecutive close above 18,000. We closed above 18,000 for the first time yesterday. And the catalyst for the move up was the bigger-than-expected revision to third-quarter GDP, which had initially been um, reported, I think, as up 3.9%, which had beaten the expectations uh, that they had. It had beaten my expectations, too. And I had thought that the high-water mark for GDP for 2014 would be in the second quarter. But I was wrong, because the third quarter was revised up to 5%. That was much higher than the upward revisions that people were looking for. They were prepared for a revision up to maybe around 4.3 to 4.5. Instead, uh, we got 5%. Again, and this just fueled the fire of this wild optimism on Wall Street and in the foreign exchange markets about the, the strength of the U.S. recovery, this U.S. economic miracle that the central banks have pulled off. And now we're the, the only economy that's growing in the world and every place else is a basket case. And, you know, everybody wants to buy the dollar. They want to buy U.S. stocks, money from all around the world are pouring in. And, you know, I think this is, again, the biggest disconnect I've ever seen between what people expect to happen and what's going to happen. I think we have more false confidence in this bubble economy than we had in either the dot-com bubbles or the real estate bubbles. And, of course, you know, none of the so-called experts that were in love with the U.S. market uh, back then could see the problems looming on the horizon. And, again, they're, they're just as oblivious now because they never understood the problems. That's why they don't understand that the Fed didn't solve them. The Fed exacerbated them. But— Let's actually look at this GDP number, because, again, when you look beneath the surface, 
all is not as well as people seem to believe. So where did the upward revision come from? The revision was mainly due to an extra 1% uh, increase in consumer spending. So consumers were spending a lot more money in the third quarter than we were originally led to believe. What did they spend their money on? Well, a little over two-thirds of it was on Obamacare, health care expenses, Obamacare. Well, is the economy really bigger because a bunch of people uh, paid for Obamacare at gunpoint, basically? I think most Americans would rather have that money to spend on something other than Obamacare. But the fact that they had to spend all this extra money on a government-mandated program doesn't really mean the economy is bigger. And of course, these are one-time gains that are not going to be in future GDP numbers. I mean, maybe there's still a little bit of this held over for Q4, but by next year, there isn't going to be a net benefit to GDP from Obamacare. In fact, there might be a subtraction as some of the people who were paying for Obamacare uh, realize they can't afford it anymore and they stop making their payments. So that could be a drag on future GDP. Also, remember, a big component of the Q3 number was the um, the big increase in inventories. Companies are so an- anticipating a big recovery that they are preparing for it by you know loading up on merchandise that they think they're going to be able to sell. Well, if they were wrong, if they end up with merchandise they can't sell because their customers are too broke to buy it, that is going to act as a big drain on the GDP numbers we get next year, as it turns out that they basically were mistaken on their optimism. And again, I think they are mistaken. Now, the, the second quarter, right, was which was not as high as 5%, that, that quarter, though, was really you know, a result of the very weak first quarter. Because of the the weather, we had economic activity that didn't take place in Q1, but did take place in Q2. And so the first half of the year was really only 1%, if you average that out. So this third quarter is really the outlier, standing alone. And I think, again, it's really influenced by uh, the inventory builds and Obamacare, and it doesn't indicate a 5% economy. The U.S. economy isn't anything like a 5% uh, GDP economy. But that's what people are concluding. They're jumping to these conclusions. But they're ignoring a lot of the other data because this really is the rearview mirror, right? This is the third quarter. The third quarter ended a couple of months ago. All the data that's come out since then, and this is the October and November data, and now we're getting uh, December data, almost all this data has been bad, way below expectations. So looking in the, uh, into the windshield, Uh, the fourth quarter GDP would look to be a significant reduction down to maybe the low twos and maybe even below. We'll see. But that would be a significant deceleration in GDP growth going into 2015, which I think should be a concern for anybody who is trying to hang their hat on a strengthening U.S. economy. Here's some of the numbers we got that nobody is talking about. Everybody's talking about the GDP number, which is backward looking. But let's look at some November data. So November existing home sales, they were expecting a 1.1% drop, but instead they got a 6.1% drop. I mean, this is way bigger than anything they were expecting. In fact, this is the largest percentage decline in existing home sales since January of 2010. I mean, we're supposed to be on the verge of liftoff here. 
right? We're finally blasting off into this great recovery and home sales are collapsing. And this is, you know, with mortgage rates still at record lows, cheap gas. And the Fed hasn't even raised rates yet. I mean, if home sales are already falling off a cliff and they haven't even lifted interest rates, they haven't even increased the cost of buying a home. Plus, you just had Fannie and Freddie ease their standards so that now you can qualify for a FHA, a Fannie or Freddie insured loan with just a 3% down payment, yet sales are still dropping. So we got that number yesterday. That, should, that was a big negative number that no one cared about. We also got November durable goods, right? And the durable goods were supposed to rise. They were looking for a 3.1% gain. Guess what? They got a 0.7% decline. Right? This is the third time in four months that those durable goods numbers have been negative. And the miss from expectations, they were looking for a plus 3.1, they got a minus 0.7. That's the biggest miss of the year for durable goods. Another bad piece of economic news, totally ignored by all the bulls. Then uh, we also got new home sales yesterday, brand new homes that are built. And they unexpectedly fell. There's that word again. All the bad news is always prefaced by the word unexpectedly. Nobody expects bad news, yet that's what we keep getting. And so the, the new home sales fell to a four-month low. And this is the eighth time in 10 months where new home sales were below estimates. And in fact, this is what's even worse. They went back and revised downward all of the new home sales figures since May. And they revised them down 22%. So now they're saying that all the new homes that we thought we sold, even though we missed our estimates, we actually overestimated what was sold by 22%. So real uh, existing home sales and new home sales falling off the edge of a cliff. We got uh, personal income and spending numbers too yesterday. And per, it, Incomes were supposed to rise by five-tenths of a percent. Instead, they rose by four-tenths of a percent. That's still one of the bigger increases of the year, I think, but below estimates. But personal spending did go up by 0.6% in November. But that meant that the savings rate fell to 4.4%, which is a new low for the year. So people are having to rely more on debt. Uh, to finance their expenditures because the savings rate is falling. The savings rate hitting a new low for the year is not indicative of an improving economy because in an improving economy where er workers earn more, they save more. But now they're not. They're having to dip into their savings. Even the cheap gas prices are not helping out. It's not like they're taking that windfall from cheap gas and they're using it to buy other things. They're having to borrow money to buy other things. So savings rate hitting a new low for the year. Again, these are the negatives that nobody wants to talk about as they just focus on this headline number and like an ostrich keeping their head in the sand to any of the other data that is out there. In fact, a very good example of this, uh, you know, blind optimism, um, just, you know, refusing to, 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 to look at the facts I was watching on CNBC, this guy, Bill Smead. I don't even know where the guy works. 
But this guy was super, super bullish on the economy, on the stock market. And the host was kind of like asking him, like, well, what about this? What about that? And so one of the things the host says, hey, what about all these student loans, right? What about $1.3 trillion in student loan debt? You know, don't you see this as a damper, you know, on the recovery, on housing? And he was like, oh, no, no, no. He goes, the average balance, I think, is somewhere around $24,000 a student. Uh the millennials who are average age about 28. When I was 28, I had a $100,000 mortgage or, or larger, and I didn't have student loan debt. What would you rather have right now? Be single with 24,000 student loan debt or, 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 or be us married with $100,000 of mortgage debt? The balance sheet of the average 28-year-old is the best that 28-year-olds have ever been because in the last 50 years, everybody was married by then. Now, I don't know if, you know, if we, the host took any offense about him talking about how much better off young men are because they're not married. And that's a whole different uh, subject that I'm not even going to get into, whether you're better off being single or being married. But the bottom line is, at least when you were 28 and married and you, know, you had a wife and maybe a family, if you had a $100,000 mortgage, you also had an asset. You had a house. And the house was probably worth more than $100,000 if you had a $100,000 mortgage on it, assuming that back then you had a 20% down payment. So the guy with a $100,000 mortgage, if he had a $120,000 house, still net had a $20,000 asset. That's better than having a $24,000 student loan and no asset. Now, the only thing the student has is the diploma. But this guy had a diploma, too, back when he was 28. He just didn't have to borrow money to get it. And what is it? You know, so the 24-year-old has a diploma, but he has a $24,000 debt. But what he also doesn't acknowledge is not only does that 28-year-old guy have $24,000 in student loans, but so does his potential wife. She's got $24,000 in student loans, too. So if they ever got married together, they'd have $48,000 in student loans. Because when this guy was 28, his wife didn't have student debt either. So you had two people without student debt, and they had a house, which was an asset. And they also could start a family, which is an asset for society. To say that, well, young men are better off today because they're not bogged down with marriage, and they don't have to make a mortgage payment of 100000 All they have to do is make a $24,000 student loan payment. <laughs> you know, Remember, too, when you pay off your mortgage, you're actually building equity in your home. What kind of equity do you build when you pay off your student loan? So this is the kind of head-in-the-sand nonsense about how much better off young people are. Look, when people were 28 years old in the 1940s or 1950s, they didn't even have to go to college, and they can earn more money than the typical college grad today. They can afford to get married. They can afford to have kids. You know, one of the reasons that so many 28-year-olds are not married is because they can't afford it. They're too broke. They're still living... And in their mother's basement, they're not that attractive to the typical uh, female. They're not great husband material when you don't even have your own place. In fact, you know, another example of, you know, I think how bad it is for for young people. I mentioned this before, and I don't have the total figures because the year's not over. But this is a really bad year for Hollywood uh, box office. Right? I think it's going to be about a 5% reduction in box office for last year. So an actual decline, right? Less, 5% less money spent on movies in 2014 in the United States than in 2013. That's not the case globally, but just in America, box office is down. And, you know, over the past 34 years, that's only happened on a few occasions. 1985, 1990, 1991, 
1995, 2005, 2008, 2010, and 2011. So most of the declines have been recent. But I think this decline, if it stands at 5%, will be the third uh, biggest decline in box office ever. Now, I know a lot of people are trying to say, well, you know, it's because you know, of Netflix and stuff like that. People have alternatives, and so they're not going to the movies. And I don't buy that because going to the movies is about the experience. It's about getting out of the house. You know, uh, ever since the television set was invented, the movie theater has had competition, right? Uh, Home theater has been improving. First, you had, you know, home box offices, HBO Showtime, you know, that competed with the movies. Then you got the VCR, so you can go to Blockbuster, you can rent a movie, uh, then, yeah, yeah, now you got movies on demand, you got Netflix, all this stuff keeps happening. So you keep getting a better at home experience. But it doesn't mean you don't go to the movies because that's a, a totally different thing, right? People like to go to the movies, kids like to go to the movies. These young people, I mean, if you want to ask a girl out on a date, you know, if you say, hey, why don't you come over to my house and, and watch some Netflix on my laptop? I mean, that doesn't sound too you know, enticing. I mean, if I was a young woman and some guy asked me out to his house to watch Netflix, I mean, I wouldn't accept that, that, uh, that date, right? You guys, Hey, let's go out to the movies. All right. Yeah. Okay. You're, I'm taking you out. We're going to go out. We're getting out of the house. We're going someplace. We're doing something. Even little kids. I mean, if, a, if the parents ask their kids, Hey, what should we do today? Should we go to the movies or stay home and watch, uh, Netflix? They're all going to want to go to the movies. They don't want to get popcorn. They're going to want to get a fountain drink, right? It's an experience. So why are people buying fewer tickets. It's particularly young people who go to the movies. And in fact, I read a statistic for 12 to 24-year-olds. And this is only for the first nine months of the year. I saw it. I don't know how it is for the full year. But they said among that group, box office is down 15%. 15% for high school and college kids and early, you know, young 20s, 15% decline. It's because they don't have the money. It's not because they don't want to get out of the house. Right. They just can't afford it. So they're staying home. Right. Just like, you know, but they're going to try to pretend that all, you know, all of a sudden, for some reason, young people decide they don't want to go to the movies anymore. I think it was an economic decision. That's why. Sure. Yes. There is more entertainment at home, which makes it better for the people who are too poor to afford movie tickets. But that is the reality. Right. So these young people are not in such great shape because if they were, they'd be taking their dates to the movies instead of sitting at home, you know, watching, watching Netflix. And a lot of these guys, you know, these 28 year old guys living in their basement. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're probably watching porn as opposed to Netflix because they, they can't, they can't get at women because they don't have a job. They can't take them out on a date. So they're just at home, but yeah, Hey, I guess they're better off, right? Cause they're not bogged down with the ball and chain, but it actually got worse. I mean, I, I you thought it couldn't have even got any worse from this guy, you know, living, you know, in a true state of complete denial when he actually started talking about the people who have the college debt. The, the reality is most of that debt is attached to people that went to prestigious colleges, became doctors, became lawyers, became highly educated professionals or graduate students at the best colleges. The average 35-year-old that, that went to college and got a four-year degree makes $25,000 a year dur- uh, per, in their lifetime than a non-college educated person. You think taking out an average of $24,000 in debt is a good idea to make $25,000 more a year between age 35 and 65? I think so. So this guy is saying that most of these student loans 
are from people who went to the Ivy League colleges, our finest, most prestigious universities, and they became doctors and lawyers. What is this guy smoking? The best colleges? No. Most of these loans went to people who went to mediocre, who went to crappy colleges, who went to community colleges, night school, correspondence. They went to online colleges. And the average guy with student debt is not a doctor, is not a lawyer. And, and those guys have a lot of debt. They might The doctors have 200000 in debt. No, the typical guy that has the 24000 in debt went to some no, you know, BS university, majored in some Mickey Mouse liberal arts, you know, degree. So his degree is worthless. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't help him drive a cab or mix a cocktail or serve French fries. I mean, to say that we don't have to worry about student loans because it's just the best and the brightest Ivy League graduates who are going to make all this money as lawyers and doctors. So it's no big deal. No, you've got people who are doing jobs that really you don't even need a high school degree to, to do. And they've got stuck with these with these college degrees. This, But this, this is the typical thinking. I mean, does this guy have any idea? I mean, he, is he just making this stuff up? Does he actually believe what he's saying? But this is the kind of disconnect that's out there between people investing. They really want to believe this, right? That yes, yes, the student loans are held by just doctors and graduates of Harvard and MIT and Yale. No, Santa Monica City College. You know, you've got all kinds of community and junior colleges where people are borrowing all sorts of money. In fact, a lot of people who are borrowing money, a lot of, you know, the student loans are going to people who don't even care about the degree. They're just enrolling in some online class or some community college because they have access to the loans. It's the only way they can borrow the money. They have to go to school to qualify for the student loans. So they enroll. They don't care. They don't study. Doesn't matter to them. They just want the money. Well, what about paying it back? Well, that's tomorrow's problem. They'll cross that bridge when they get to it. It's living in the here and now. So to believe, to turn a blind eye and to say that young people have never been in better shape just because they're single. I mean, this guy must have had one hell of a rotten marriage uh, if, if he thinks that, you know, just because they, they haven't made the mistake of getting married, uh, that they're better off. Right. And of course, if they ever do want to get married, then they have to buy a house. And how big is that mortgage going to be? I mean, this guy had a hundred thousand dollar mortgage. You can't buy much of a house today for a hundred thousand dollars. So now in order for the young people to get a house, they're going to have to have an even bigger mortgage, which is harder to afford when you're also juggling student loans. And it costs a lot of these guys are juggling loans that are a lot bigger than 24000 because a lot of the people that have these student loans for only 24000 never even graduated. See, that's another point that this guy doesn't understand is a lot of the student debt belongs to students who didn't even get a degree. They only went for two or three years and they dropped out. They didn't even finish, but they still have their loans. What's that? Now you don't even have the supposed, you know, key to the Golden Castle, the ticket to Easy Street. You never actually made it because a lot of people who never even should have started college, who barely made it out of high school, were encouraged by the system, their guidance counselors or their parents to go to college anyway and to borrow money. And they really couldn't hack it. They couldn't compete. Maybe they had remedial course coursework. And, and they never finished. And now they have all this debt 
but they don't even have the, the, the degree. A lot of the people that have the degrees can't even get any jobs because when there's so many people with college degrees that aren't working or are working in meaningful, uh, meaningless uh, jobs. Again, if you haven't already seen it, go on YouTube and watch the video that I shot in New Orleans. Just type in Peter Schiff uh, College or, or uh, is college worth it or Peter Schiff, whatever, and you'll see me in New Orleans interviewing all the waiters and waitresses and busboys and pedicab uh, uh, drivers, um, you know, talking about where they went to college and how much money they borrowed. And you can look at what they're doing for a living. Some of the people I talked to had multiple advanced degrees and they were still, you know, barkers at strip clubs. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it doesn't guarantee. So this guy, again, this is this is typical. Just the way they ignore all the other data. They just want to pretend everything is bullish. They're perma bulls, professional bulls, cheerleaders for the economy and the stock market. So all you got to do, again, is listen to this guy. And as crazy as this stuff is, because it's obvious that what he's saying is nonsense, yet he doesn't even know it. And it's the same thing in general with all the other guys that are ignoring the bad news and just seeing what they want to see. So this guy just sees what he wants to see, and he finds a way to make lemonade out of all of these economic uh, lemons. Hey, one final uh, thought I wanted to mention uh, before I wrap this up, and again, wishing everybody Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, is the cruise that I'm going on, the Real Estate Guy cruise, we still have tickets available. They're close to being sold out, but I wanted to mention this event because my wife and I have gone to it now three years in a row, and it is a lot of fun. There's a lot of good speakers. There's a lot to learn, but it's really a good time. Uh, the real estate guys, when they 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 really know how to entertain you. So we have we really enjoy going on this cruise. And I would certainly encourage anybody if you've never been on a cruise or you have, and uh, this is a perfect opportunity to go to the Caribbean for a week, uh, learn a little bit, get a tax write off, spend some time with me. Uh, you know, meet my wife, my young son uh, will be there as well. It's March 6th to the 14th is the cruise. And we're also going to be stopping in Puerto Rico. And we're going to be talking a lot about the opportunities in Puerto Rico. Uh, if you haven't also seen my video at USTaxFreeZone.com, uh, check that out. But people who are interested in maybe learning about Puerto Rico, this is an opportunity to actually go down there and visit the island. It's one of the ports of call on the cruise. But to get more information on it, you can just go to cruisewithpetershift.com, uh, uh, cruisewithpetershift.com, and you can uh, get some information or register for the real estate guys. Either cruise with Peter, cruise with Peter Schiff. I think those are the URLs.com, uh, and you'll be able to uh, sign up. There's not, I don't know how many cabins they have left, maybe a dozen or so. So if you do want to go, uh, you got to hurry up. And again, the, the set sail date, it's the cruise is March 6th to the 14th. So it's only a few months away. So if you can, you know, if you can plan something that quickly, uh, you'll have a good time. You'll have a chance again to spend uh, some quality time with me as well on board that boat because it's a seven, seven day cruise. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. 
Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies.